Good afternoon, good evening. I am Bob B and I am an alcoholic. And it gives me pleasure and gratitude to be able to say that I am an alcoholic today because it answers so many questions. Questions like, um, why did I do those things to all those people on my eighth step list? Why do I still wake up in the morning uh, with a head that would, that would kill me if it could, with a brain full of, of you know, pre-recovery thinking until I do my prayer and meditation in the morning. Now that happens less and less often. And, and my friend Billy M occasionally has said um, that there are mornings where he wakes up and the only thing wrong is that he thinks there's something wrong. And I can relate to that. I, I hang out with people I can relate to these days. Um, Another question would be, why do I still need meetings? My sobriety date is January 2nd, 1984. Why do I still need these meetings? Why do I obsess when I'm asked to pitch at a meeting like now? You know, I've, I've had to deal with that all morning. Okay, now, why do I still think that I am less than? Why do I worry about the title of this talk? Um, I was asked to, to pitch an idea and it came up with, and, and we came up with uh, our primary purpose. I'm no expert on that, our primary purpose. I'm not an AA historian, our primary purpose. Um, but in thinking about it, uh, Bob Martin and I both learned something, you know, we did a little research into it. Our, our primary purpose is that phrase that we get in the preamble for every meeting. It's to stay sober and to help another alcoholic achieve sobriety. And um, man, that last part has become more and more important to me these days. I have a couple of sponsees that just keep me on track and, um, I wasn't always reaching out for sponsees. I wasn't always looking to work with anybody. I was, I was a mess and I needed this program for me. And today it's like, yeah, I have more than enough time in my life to give back. Um, that's, that's where it comes from. Uh, the preamble, as I understand it, uh, is a rewritten version of something that appears in the first forward um, uh, or the forward to the first edition. And uh, I guess an editor at the grapevine got a hold of it and rewrote it and turned it into the preamble that appears in all, all those AA pamphlets and that we open many, many meetings with. So that's where it comes from, our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help another and and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. Um, that's not my primary purpose every day in every setting, but as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, it is when I am here as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, um, I need to make that distinction because I've had the primary purpose weaponized and used on me as an individual. Um, it happened 
Ooh, several years ago, I'd say close to 15 years ago. And, and it hurt um, for somebody to, to do that. But um, I can get to that. It's part of my story, comes up later. I am not a representative in any form, but I'm a proud member of a home group called Rule 62. And we meet every morning at nine o'clock on Zoom only. It's a meeting that began with the pandemic um, uh, and has never had a face-to-face, -face except when we get together for lunch or when somebody's visiting from out of town and, and, and that kind of thing um, uh, to socialize. It's Zoom only and it has saved my program. It has given me direction. I'm really, really proud of those guys. Uh, what is rule 62 for the newbie? Um, it's uh, <laughs> don't take yourself so damn seriously is, is what rule 62 is. And there's a whole story about that in the traditions. Look, I did not lose it all before I came to AA. I still had some friends. Um, I still had couches to sleep on. Um, I, I liken it to... If hell was a planet with an atmosphere and I was a meteor streaking through space, I bounced off. I, I, I got into the atmosphere. I felt my fire and it hurt like anything. But through God's grace, I was bounced out. And, and, I, and I did not lose everything. So um, it just felt like it at the time. Uh, now today, I'm grateful for the things that have been taken from me because I have this life instead and it's beyond my imagination. Um, one of the traditions, I mean, the book tells us that we have to, we have to share what it was like what happened and what it's like now. And long timers, I get it. Um, maybe you wanna take a long pee break right now because I'm gonna start with what it was like. Uh, and, and we all know how to drink and use, but uh, this is my story. And in following our primary purpose, I think it's important. Personally, it took me a year of coming to meetings before I actually heard somebody explain his drinking habits. And I got to say, finally, that guy is me. Um, he, he nailed it to a T. And if he had not been into telling what it was like, I never would have heard that he was a blackout drinker. He, he, was, a, he was an airplane pilot and um, as I remember it, he uh, had, said that he was calling in to report that he was going to be late to do a cross-country turnaround flight. And he was told, don't come in. You already did that flight. Where do you think you're calling from? And um, he, had, he had flown a passenger jet full of, full of passengers in a blackout. And uh, that's the kind of driving that I used to do. And, and I don't know why it took a year before I heard that, but I never would have heard it 
Um, look, I'll just stop talking about the talk and just give it. Um, in a small Midwestern town in Indiana, my mom and dad were next door neighbors and uh, they grew up and married. Um, I was a surprise baby, uh, very off center. I've got an older brother, 12 years my senior, but um, so my parents were, were slightly older um, than most. And, uh, you know, I, I see now why that was, why that it was extra difficult for them to relate to a teenager. Uh, dad was in middle management at a furniture factory uh, in a lovely setting. I mean, this town was surrounded by woods and farmland and, and just gorgeous place to, to grow up. Um, geez, uh, he was not, not only was that, but it's quite important that I say that he was a weekend musician. Uh, he played in dance halls on Saturday nights and uh, he was around a lot of drinking at the time and I never saw him drunk. Um, that, that comes up later though, that he was also a blackout drinker and he was white knuckling it when I was born. Uh, I only learned that from my mother after my dad passed, but mom, he was, he was a weekend musician. He was all, also secretly an atheist, but he showed up for church. He'd, he'd get home from the Saturday night gig at three o'clock in the morning, and he'd show up for church in a Lutheran choir just so he could sing. He was that devoted to music on the side. And uh, as a result, I, I, was kind of confused. There was no religion in our household. What, what was that about? Um, it gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, it gave me a lot of freedom to um, listen to the pastor of that Lutheran church when I was singing in the choir. And he got me turned on to C.S. Lewis, where I, I got some basic uh, moral uh, philosophy without any real religious dogma thrown into it. It was something. My mom was a visual artist and uh, came from a big Catholic family of heavy drinkers. And I always thought that my cousins lived in the families that had more fun. Um, I, didn't, I didn't recognize when my uncles and aunts were um, just, you know, next to falling down drunk. I was just too little to recognize it. Um, in my dad's devotion, to music, he made sure that I took piano lessons. And in, um, in a town in Southern Indiana where everyone is devoted to sports, um, if, you, if you ever saw the old movie Hoosiers, uh, I don't see anybody nodding like you've seen that movie. Anyway, it, it's the story of, of a small town basketball squad that takes the state championship. Well, some of the guys on that squad ended up being my high school teachers. Uh, it, it was, you know, you, you had to be a jock. You had to be into athletics big time. It was basketball. It was American football. It was all of that. And if you weren't because you were too busy being made to practice piano lessons, well, you'd grow up with resentments, right? And, and that's what I did. I grew up with resentment against my dad for sharing his, his musical talent with me. It, it, so bizarre, but it just didn't, it, it, it made me a, a standout and I didn't fit in socially 
as a result. As a matter of fact, I got beat up a lot. And I also resented not knowing how to defend myself in a fight. Um, but the gift of a freedom of uh, no, re no religious dogma in the house gave me, yeah, just a lot of freedom. I was always a seeker. Um, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. There was Marvel Comics. Um, man, you, you can learn how to live if you just listen to Silver Surfer, you know, um, Silver Surfer. And, and, and if you can relate to all those, all those characters who are wrestling with their secret identities and having to be two different people uh, in different settings, um, a lot of angst in those comic books. A, a great, place, great place for me to identify uh, for a guy who really didn't have much of a social life. Um, I got into a hypnosis book and, uh, that was my ego just telling me that, um, you know, if, if I, if I go deep enough, I can turn myself into something else. Uh, it was just a weird kid, a weird kid. There were no, I had no girlfriends my own age, but I was attracting an abnormal amount of attention from older girls. I, I didn't get that. I mean, my babysitter when I was a kid, I mean, you know, my parents were away playing on, on gigs on Saturday nights. So my sister and I were raised with babysitters on Saturday nights. Um, but there I was in the Rexall drugstore at the soda fountain flirting with an older girl behind the counter. And um, I noticed that there's a circus magazine. I don't know if anybody remembers Crawdaddy and circus magazines, but circus man, it told me I had to get out of that small town. Circus Magazine and all my rock and roll idols in the late 60s and the early 70s said, no, no, no. Um, there's nothing wrong with you, kid. You're, you're just misunderstood and you're too sophisticated. Get out of this little town, go to California, become a rock star and make sure you do a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs because all your heroes, you know, they essentially die. And, and you wanna be like that. And um, there I was, you know, in, in a town with the second highest alcohol consumption rate in the whole state of Indiana. That's a state police statistic. Um, it was easy to get my hands on, a, on my first quart of Boone's Farm uh, wine and, um, and, and to just knock myself out with that and, and to try to get everybody else in, in the little trio to share their bottles with me when mine was done. Um, within, within just a matter of weeks, I was smoking dope and, uh, and that became, you know, I was what, by that time, 14, I had started my own band and that way I could get out of playing in my dad's band. Um, uh, and, you know, I could book as many gigs and, and put them on conflicting Saturday nights and, uh, and get myself out of, out of playing in his group and um, call attention to myself. There was an awful lot of that, but it was, it was my, it was my shot 
at, at some kind of notoriety um, because I just, you know, failed miserably as an athlete. Um, so I got started. I got started following my rock and roll idols. I started that band. I watched Woodstock, drank, smoked, did lewds, reds, MDA, acid, um, and, and did all those things alcoholically. There was, you know, and, and I can't say that every drug gave me an effect that I liked. And that's why alcohol was always present, you know, uh, to take the edge off, to, to make it, to make it okay. I could, I could socialize and do the, do the drug that everybody else was doing. But meanwhile, I was just plastered drunk and, um, and I could convince my parents that I had a stomach ailment and it was due to my nervousness because I was being picked on at school. And, and okay, so that got the doctor to prescribe some phenobarbital, which, you know, that really mixes well on weekends when you save up the dosage and, and, and just take them all on the, on the weekend. That, that was my, that was the way I went. Um, okay, so moving away to college, that just meant a lot of freedom to just ramp it all up. Uh, anything that I had done in the little town, um, once I moved away and went to college, um, everything just really exploded and, and it included, you know, add cocaine to the mix and, and add some wrecked cars to the mix and add broken hearts and a lot of really, really lovely constant drama. And some of that, I, I owe some special amends to, to a woman that, that I moved in with and she put up with me uh, for, for a while, but um, I've tried to make those amends. And here's a lesson, here's a lesson. Uh, sometimes the best amends you can make is to just get out of somebody's memories altogether. You know, stop reminding. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I got my emotional ass kicked over that attempt. It was, it was not something I should have even tried to do. Um, she suffered enough. Anyway, um, when I found myself getting in too deep with the cocaine trade in the college town, I had a brilliant idea. Um, I, would, I would follow a friend out to Los Angeles. Um, yeah, let's get away from cocaine by moving to LA in, in the mid seventies. I don't think so. Right. So, um, what happened there? More of the same. Got into some bands, a lot of sleeping around and to escape some of that, I found a woman who partied harder than I did. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but I found her. She partied harder than I did. And she had two lovely little girls who had no father. And so this is perfect. I get to prove I'm a responsible guy and I married her. And we had a child of our own. And that's my daughter um, who now has 15 years, 16 years of sobriety herself. I'm, I'm really glad she survived all of this, uh, man. Okay, 
and and her older her oldest half sister has one more year than she does. Now I just have to get it right. I think the oldest one has sixteen years, and and the the youngest one has fifteen years. And in the middle is is a grown woman, uh, the other the other uh, stepdaughter, who uh, is is an it, she's worked in a real hard Al Anon program. Yeah, it's very cool. Anyway, anyway. Oh, but that does bring me to Al Anon, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that marriage was doomed as, as hard as I wanted to go at it. For me to hook up with somebody who did worse or bigger or better, um, well, what's, what's gonna happen? I was a stepping stone for her. Uh, she wanted to move up socially and um, I was tired of uh, having to run to the bank to cover bad checks. Um, it was all it was all going into booze and coke. And uh, I remembered a newspaper column, a columnist named Dear Abby or uh, or her sister, Ann Landers, uh, advice columns. I remembered reading those. I, I would entertain myself drunkenly reading those things. And, and uh, I remember the advice was get yourself into Al-Anon. And I thought, there's the answer. I'll find an Al-Anon meeting and they will teach me how to control this woman's outrageous behavior. You know, because it was real convenient for me to blame everything on her and to, um, to forget that I'm playing gigs five nights a week and I can only remember the drive home four of those nights. You know, um, I just, it was real convenient for her to be more outrageous than I and for me to need an Al-Anon meeting to get in to get on top of that. Um, funny thing is, I found the same kind of doting over me and my plight. Oh, by the way, as soon as I brought it up, as soon as I brought it up, hey, uh, I think we need to slow down. I think we need to stop drinking. I need, I, I think maybe we need to quit doing drugs. That's when she decided to make her move and kick me out of the house. You know, because um, I was I was ready for sobriety. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but um, but it was all based on her. So so that gave me a whole ticket into Al-Anon meetings to say, oh, poor me, poor me. I've been kicked out and there's these three kids. And uh, what am I going to do? And um, it's funny how there were some men and women in the room who had a completely different attitude than most of the people. Most of the people in the Al-Anon meetings were willing to listen to me and to sympathize with me and, and to give me all kinds of advice about how to deal with this and deal with that and deal. And, and these guys off to the corner had funny questions to me about my own drinking. 
I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, but a guy named Bobby, Bobby Weissman, invited me to a weekend camp out. He, he had a group called the Gonzo Group, and it was open to AAs, Alanons, Alateens, Alatots, Alapets. We were going to, we were all going to get together and go camping. And he said, Bob, you got the kids this weekend. I dare you to come join us and have fun. And it was in Gonzo meetings where I heard alcoholics telling their stories and taking, um, <laughs> they, they didn't give cakes for sobriety years. They gave pies. And sometimes it would be a cream pie in the face. It was the most irreverent AA group, and it was home. It was just what I needed. It was, um, it was, let's let's break all the traditions and uh, and let's see what happens. And I was all for that. Let's let's throw it out there and see if, see what sticks. And. Um, uh, in hearing the alcoholics sharing around campfires and in meetings, and so often being able to think to myself, oh my God, I can top that story. I can top this one. What? Yeah. No, I didn't get arrested for it, but I should have, you know, and, and how many cars? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I can top that number. Um, how many broken hearts? Oh, that got uncomfortable. I didn't want to hear about that. But I was definitely relating to the alcoholics in the Gonzo group. And uh, occasionally I would let it slip, you know, that, that yeah, I, I had stories too. I was, I was into the, uh, those double winners, man. They saved my life. They saved my life because there was a time when I, when I got to thinking, okay, this woman has, and she's, she's, uh, she's shacked up with our Coke dealer and, um, our, no, I'm sorry. One of our Coke dealers. Okay. One of our Coke dealers. I, I have to clarify that for reasons that'll come up later, but, um, uh, she, she moved in with him and, um, I had to be the better parent because my kids shouldn't be around that. I had to be the better parent. And so I'm going to try this sobriety thing. I'm not going to declare myself an alcoholic. I'm just going to put it down. I'm going to stop and see how long I can hold on. And for five months, my resentment and, and the wish to be better than somebody else. My ego could, could keep, me, keep me dry for five months until in my day job one day, uh, let's see, that was January. Yeah, it was, it was midnight, New Year's Eve was, was my last drink. Um, so five months later, I'm in my day job and somebody mentions, let's go out to happy hour. And uh, that was like nine o'clock in the morning. And I'm, I, was, I was an assistant to an accountant. And 
So crunch numbers became impossible. I could not even work the calculator for the rest of the day. The obsession to drink was overwhelming. And the, and the, what I hadn't yet admitted to myself was that if I do have that first drink, I don't even know that I'll go home. You know, I, to, I hadn't revealed that. I didn't think I had revealed that to anyone. But because I had been hanging out with these alcoholics and I had a big book, I knew to get on my knees. I knew that I had to pray on this and I did not know to whom I was going to pray. I just knew that they had been saved. They had given me an example to follow. And, and I was able to do that. I waited for lunchtime and, and in my little work cubicle, got down on my knees and I asked for the obsession to drink, to be relieved, to be relieved from it. And I was. So there you have it. By this time, I was dating a girl in the Gonzo group, and, and she had said that, you know, anytime, any, any, anytime she was ever, if she ever found herself with another guy who was an alcoholic, she'd leave him. And okay, well, I guess I'm going to be saying goodbye to her because the next time we go to Gonzo, I'm going to, I'm going to declare as an alcoholic. And I did. And the murmur went, it was another camp out and it, the murmuring went around the circle and I saw everybody looking at each other. And I said, what's the big deal? I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. And Bobby Weissman said, Bob, you just made it unanimous. We've known this and we've been waiting for you to come around. And life changing. Yep. That that was it. That was that was the beginning for me. It was a my it 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 I, I'm I'm so grateful. Uh, I hope that that much of my story is something you can relate to um, somebody, you know, like I said, it, it took me a year before I heard anybody share in a way that I could relate wholeheartedly. And um, that's the reason I had to tell you where I came from. But now that I'm in it, I did have a sponsor. Uh, once, once I knew I had to work the 12 steps as an alcoholic, I dug into it. I, with, with great fervor, I dived right into the big book and I worked the steps. I got out pen and paper and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And then I called the guy and asked him to be my sponsor. Uh, kind of backwards there, right? Um, I, I was just anxious. I, I wanted this thing. I didn't have a sponsor yet, but I worked this. I worked my fourth step the best I could and called this guy and um, he, had, he had the nickname of Dr. Bob because he showed up at meetings wearing medical scrubs and his name was Bob. So I asked Dr. Bob to be my first sponsor and he told me he, uh, 
he thought that I needed to go out and try some more controlled drinking. And that is not an example that I, I, I just want you to know that, that it, can, it can come that way. Um, I hung up the phone on him. I, I chewed him out and I said, what do you think I've been doing all my life? I've, you know, I'm done. I am done. Now, if you won't sponsor me, I'll move on. Unofficially, my sponsor was Bobby W. Um, he had his hands full with sponsees and he said, no, I'll be your friend. And um, um, he's the kind of guy who, you know, if, if I complained about uh, locking myself out of my car, uh, maybe two or three times in a day, he'd say, what'd you do? Something stupid like pray for patience. And he, he called me on it. He knew it. Bobby was there when I had a burning bush experience. Um, it, it doesn't follow any of the rules of any religion I know. Um, my higher power reached out to me in a way that I could, that, that I could accept. And so quite honestly, it more closely resembled a Dr. Strange adventure um, as drawn by Steve Ditko in a Marvel comic. It, it, was, it was a trip through space. It was, it was just nutty. Um, but my higher power reached me in a way that I could be reached is what I'm trying to say. Uh, my second official sponsor walked me through a second, fourth step. Richard M. had what I wanted. He had a motorcycle jacket and he looked like a Ken doll. And that was enough for me. But um, uh, when we got to my, my eighth step, he, he was willing to look at that list. But when it came to the ninth, he said, Bob, you're gonna have to find another sponsor because I have, I have no advice for you on that. I haven't done my ninth yet. So I moved on and I found George B, um, who was an old time Hollywood guy and just a real sweetheart of a guy. Once again, no pressure, no pressure to do the steps. Just when you get it, when you get your fourth step, I'll listen to it. So, so I did a, a, a third, fourth step there with George and, and amazing things happened in my life in the sharing of that. Um, my next sponsor will remain nameless because he's a guy who uh, just got too busy to answer my calls and he's, he's still in the program. Um, um, my current sponsor, is one of the first guys I met when I moved to Hollywood. And he's one of the, and, and he's one of the guys we bought Coke from. Uh, the sponsor I have now knew me when we were both just out there like crazy. And, and I trust him with ab absolutely everything and, and anything in my life. Um, yeah, it's, he's, he's got one more year of sobriety than I. And um, that's, uh, it, no, I, it's not 50 minutes for me yet. But anyway, there we are. Um, I, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to confess here that I took a break from AA. Um, I misappropriated some of the things that belonged to somebody who went away to prison. 
Um, he had left a whole lot of stuff in my apartment. Uh, I, I, had, I was divorced from my second marriage, this time in sobriety. And uh, he, got out of, he got out of prison and uh, couldn't find his stuff. And when, when I told him, hey, look, I had to move and, and I just had to dump your stuff. I, I, your sister wouldn't take it. Nobody else would take it. And I had to dump your stuff. And he threatened my life. And friends that we had in common uh, said that they believed him, that he would kill me the next time he saw me. And uh, so I took a break. I, I got real close to my God. I got real close to prayer and meditation. And somebody in the program suggested, hey, why don't you take this path? You'll find that it's like AA grad school. And so I got hooked up with a personality cult sect um, for about eight years in which I did not drink, um, but I did wake up one night on a, on a retreat and say to myself, you know, if I were to drink just like some of these folks do, um, they wouldn't know what to do with me. I better get my ass back to AA. And I slipped out of the bunk and I got into my car and I rolled backwards in neutral down the driveway without starting up the car. And I drove home and I never, and I never looked back. I did get back into AA. I've checked around for, to see whether that guy's out there. And um, uh, I can't find him anywhere. And uh, it's been so many years that I think it's, it's gonna be okay. Uh, I didn't throw myself back into AA wholeheartedly. Uh, there was no H and I for me, um, like there was in the early days. There was no uh, going to going to ninety meetings in ninety days, like there was when I was new. Um, there was no home group. Um, there was just an occasional meeting now and then, and and I justified that by saying I'm a high school teacher now. And and I'm teaching music to the freaks and geeks who are just like I was when I was their age. And I'm working with alcoholics and I'm working with drug addicts every day. And so um, it wasn't until retirement, I retired in the spring of, hi, Sean C. Um, I retired in the spring of, uh, of COVID after spending two months teaching in Zoom. So I knew how Zoom worked and uh, darn, I, I, I bumped into a guy named Dorian who said, hey, I remember you. I remember you from the musicians meeting 30 some years ago. And uh, why don't you join me in this morning meeting? And I've been at Rule 62 ever since. Uh, it's, been a, it's, been, it's been home for me. And the difference coming around is that uh, I've watched this group circle the wagons around the newcomer. I never saw that before. I was always in the center, but, and, and, and I would go out on H&I, but I didn't develop personal relationships with new people. I didn't do that before. I don't know why, I don't know how I missed that, but I get it now, I get it now. And, um, and that's, that's where I want to be. 
And when I'm not at Rule 62 every day, it's because my primary purpose at that moment may be to be a good husband to my third wife. Uh, we've been together for 30 years and married for 25, and she's never seen me drunk. And, and that's a lovely thing. And uh, maybe it's to be a, the best father I can be to my daughter, who, um, has, as Bob knows, has had pretty serious back surgery, and she's moved in here with, with our grandkids. And uh, she's, she's, she's hanging on to her sobriety and, and I'm there to help her and, and to be with the kids. And, and um, it's, it's so much more about the new person now. Retirement could have been a time where I would, where I would list all those unfinished goals. Um, and, and so I found a little sign that says, I'm looking at the wall here. It says, we are kept from our goals, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. And I thought that was so clever. And, and I hung it on my wall. And until I realized that it was, it was working against my gratitude. I have been kept from my goals because my goals were my screwy ideas. I have been led to this place by a power greater than myself. And my failure to reach those goals is because I have found an easier path to an unimaginable happiness. And that's where I am today. And with that, I'd, I'd like to close. Wow, thank you so much.